Today, uh, I want to take you to a passage in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and um, I invite you to pray with me first, and we will ask for the Lord to make, to prepare our minds, and to speak to us and make the word clear to us. Our Father, we want to thank you and praise you. We still are learning all about you. We're still are learning your character and your nature and how you act and how you have acted in the history of mankind. And Lord, we recognize more and more as we walk with you that we are nobodies, that we cannot do anything and anything good that comes from you, it is a gift from you. We are who we are because of grace that works within us. We have come to know you because of grace. We walk with you because of grace, because you hold us in your hands. We obey you because of grace, because you allow us and you empower us to do that. Father, we are adopted. We're made your own because of grace. And Lord, it is because of who you are, because of your loving heart to us just never stops. It continues to give and give abundantly over and over. And we just keep wondering. We just keep meditating on your goodness to us. We praise you. I pray that you would help us to see the passage of scripture clearly. I pray that you would give me grace to make it clear to the congregation. Help us all to see your hand and your heart and to be able to respond appropriately. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. As you make your way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, I want to ask you a question for you to think about. Why does one give a gift? Why does one give a gift? For example, greatest gifts have been given, let's say, in the ancient times when a commander or servant of a king would conquer land and the king would give that commander bunch of land as a reward. For example, Saul offered his daughter to David for slaying 100 Philistines. He happened to slay 200, so he gave him his daughter as a reward again. A noble prize might be given to a man who invents something, or a woman who invents something that is of great importance for the humanity, but again, as a reward. If we think about ourselves, why do we give gifts? It's because of someone who did something kind to us and we want to reward that person. We want to give them something kind also in return. Otherwise, we feel indebted. We feel like there's disbalance of some sort of. Sometimes we might even give gifts to maintain relationships so that we could uh, receive something from that person in the future. But sometimes when we talk about grace, Grace is not a reward. It is not an investment. Grace is a gift, like Arthur said earlier today, it is a gift that is not conditional. It's unconditional. When God graces us, he graces us not because we did something good to him. It's not because we have earned it in any way. It's not because he wants something from us. He graces us because he is that good, because he has a heart. He has a nature that is full of love, and out of that nature, he continues to give. Today, we're going to look at a specific passage, the Divinic Covenant. The Divinic Covenant, it's more like a grant. And we'll talk about that a little bit 
But when we discuss and we look at the life of David, we say, why did God give him what he gave him? Why did God promise him what he promised? Is it because David was so good? Is it because David earned it in any way? Or is it has something to do with God himself? And I want you to walk away today with the main point with this, that the grace of God that David received in the Old Testament is the grace of God in the same way that we receive from our God through Jesus Christ, we receive because of his loving nature and not because of our own doing. Not because he blesses us because we in any way earned it. Not that he, we, he will invest into us so that he would receive something from us, but he graces us just because of who he is. God is love, and he loves to give. He loves to grace his people. So as you probably made your way back there to 2 Samuel chapter 7, before we read our passage, I want to give you a little bit of a background behind this passage. Chapter 7 happens to be the pivotal point, the very important event in the life of David, that it was extremely important for David and for the entire nation of Israel. There was a covenant that was made. God made a covenant with David. And it happened to be that this happened when David wanted to give a gift to God. He wanted to build him a temple. And in return, God turns around and says, David, you're not going to give me a temple, but in fact, I will build you a house. So as we look at it, my prayer for us is to better understand the heart of God and the nature behind the grace that we receive. And I believe if we understand why is it that we receive what we receive, we will be better in responding properly to God's blessings. We continue to receive. We've received God's blessing through Christ all through our life, through our salvation, through the life of sanctification. We continue to depend on his grace moment after moment. And it is extremely important to answer for you and me, why? Why is God doing this? So I want to remind you that the book of 2 Samuel is, we don't know the author who wrote it, even though it says 2 Samuel, but we obviously know that the events were written way past Samuel, Samuel's life. So the author that compiled the historical events of David has done so not necessarily in chronological way, but in a very thematical way. What happens is it begins with David becoming the king over Judah alone. Then the kingdom expands. There was a civil war that resulted in David becoming king over the entire nation of Israel. Then after that, we see that David conquered what? Jerusalem. He conquered Jerusalem. Then he began to do a building project. Then after that, he says, well, I need to bring God into my city. This is my city, city of David. So he brings in the ark. There were a couple of attempts. On the second attempt, he brings in the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem. And after that, he's thinking that, hey, I need to build a house for God. So look with me, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
And we're going to read in two portions. The first portion is going to be from verse 1 through 9. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells with, within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in the, tab in the tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. We're going to take a pause there. So the king has finally, it says, came about when the king lived in his house. Literally, he settled down. He finally sat down. He had a long life where he was running from his enemies, from Saul along in his 20s. Then he began to be a king over Judah that was unrest for seven and a half years where the majority of the nation is against you. Then they finally accepted you. Then there was the, these enemies from around he had to conquer Jerusalem. Then he had to fight from Jerusalem out years and years of wars. He was called the man of war, actually. He had too much blood on his hands, right? That's what God told him, in, at least in First Chronicles we read that. He was a man of war. This is most of that, his life that he took is just fighting and fighting. And finally, he has settled down. In chapter 5, it says that Hiram came king from, um, from nearby came and he brought some stonemasons and he brought some cedar and they built him a house. And it says that when he built him a house, he recognized that the Lord blessed him and strengthened his kingdom finally. So this is what's happening. So imagine David is sitting in his house made of cedar now, we understand that the house was made of stone and probably laid in with cedar on the inside. He's enjoying the work of these workers, and he's thinking, he's looking maybe out the window, and he's seeing the tent, the tabernacle. And he's seeing, how is that me, being a king, living in this house that is just glorious, and God, who's represented, his presence represented by the ark, is sitting in a tent, made of curtains. So he's thinking, how does that make any sense? So what does he do? He goes to Nathan and he tells him the situation. And we understand that Nathan saw it in the same way. He says, listen, you have a good cause 
Do what the heart, what's on your heart, what your heart desires. So it's interesting that it is very interesting that his response was probably quite fast, and he did not inquire of the Lord, but the Lord had a different answer for David. Ultimately, the Lord said, no, David, you are not going to build me a house. You will not build me a house because I have a different plan. It's interesting that we may have a very different perception, right? We can come to the ministry, or we can come even to our building, we can come to our life, and whatever we want to contribute to God, and we say, you know what? I want God to be more glorious, and I want ministry to be more glorious, and I see this and this to be better done for the ministry, because it will exalt my God, right? But at times, we don't inquire, and we don't actually think, well, is this me who's going to do this? Is this maybe someone else who's going to do this ministry? Is this in this house? Is this, is this what he plans for me to do, or maybe he's not interested in this? I want to take you to a very interesting passage. If you could go with me to um, Acts, to the book of Acts, in chapter 7. This is a thousand years later. There was a man by the name Stephen. You remember he was chosen as one of seven people. And he became a very famous preacher to the point where Jews hated him. They wanted to destroy him. And there were a few things that they were accusing him of. One of the things he, they said that this man blasphemed against God and they said this man incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that the Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. So in response, here's what Stephen said. Stephen said, no. Listen, I have never said anything against the temple of God. But look what he says. In chapter 7 of Acts, verse 44, he says this. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. Now David found favor in God's sight. David was graced by God and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, look at this. The most high God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. And he quotes, heaven is my throne and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me says the Lord, or what place is there for my repose? Was it in my hand which made all these things? So look what Stephen is preaching. Stephen is saying, David was graced, and David attempted to build a house for God, but God does not dwell in houses. We can conclude even from the statement that God was not, it was not in his plans to build himself a house, even to make a temple, at least at this time. He was not in need of the temple. He allowed his people to build one for him, but unlike in the case of the tabernacle, the temple was not in the instructions, and at least not in the immediate plans. Now, when we go back to 2 Samuel 7, 7, it says this, where 
I have gone with all the sons of Israel. Did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So God is saying, David, you may have a very noble thought, idea of exalting my name by building me a glorious house, but you're coming to this with a little bit of presumption and a little bit of arrogance. I never asked anyone within the period of four to 500 years to make me a permanent, bigger, more beautiful or glorious home. You forget who I am. I am in no need of your help to make me more glorious. Our God, Paul says in Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Brothers and sisters, God does not lavish us with grace because he needs something, because he needs more glory from us, because he needs something that we will obey him in any way, because he needs us in any way. He is a God who is completely self-sufficient. He's complete in all of his nature, in his attributes. He's full and happy, completely happy within the Trinity. He lavishes us with grace because that is who he is. God acts out of his loving nature. In addition, we understand another reason that God did not allow David to build a tabernacle, I mean the temple, is because he was a man of war. He said, you shed too much blood, I would like a man of peace to do this. But the author of 2 Samuel chapter 7, that is not his point. His point is that God does not need this temple. God does not need this. And we can apply this to our lives as well. Sometimes we think of our church, we think that we, it would be so good for us to have this ministry and this ministry and that ministry and that, and um, we want it. it. Maybe it would be good, and maybe God wants it, but a lot of times we don't ask, is this what truly God wants? Is this how he wants this church to operate at this time with these people, with you? Sometimes we begin to serve, and we recognize our giftedness, and we serve and serve and serve, and we think that we're it. We think that without us, what can God do? Or what can this church do? And we come a little bit uh, arrogant, a little having sense of entitlement. And God says, look, I don't need you. I don't need you to do my ministry. I don't need you to make me glorious. I don't need you to complete my tasks and my plans because I am self-sufficient. I am a God with no need. The problem become, begins with us a lot of times. We elevate ourselves. Sometimes we do it and we have intentions that are mixed and we want to do it out of gratitude. And then it turns into a little bit of challenge that maybe I'm that, not, I'm, maybe I'm that important and maybe God needs me. So we always, always have to recheck our intentions and come back to the point where, no, my God does not need me. He can use anyone. He can use the rocks if he wants to for his glory. I also want you to notice a very little small detail. The author, I believe, is 2 Samuel, points it out very clearly. If you look at verse 1, he begins with the term 
calling David the king. He says, the king said to Nathan. Verse 3, Nathan said to the king. But then it switches. And starting from God's response, the king is actually now addressed as the servant. God's servant. Go and say to my servant in verse 5. Verse 8, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. God calls David servant twice. In God's, in David's response, which we're going to look at next time, David calls himself your servant no less than ten times. He recognizes who he is, that he is God's servant, and he is just walking completely depending on God's grace. So grace of God comes from the one without the need. That was our first point. He does not need our help to make him any more glorious or better. He's perfect and rich in all of his nature and grants to us out of that nature. Leads us to the second. To the second point, grace of God is sovereign and free. Look at verse eight. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. Notice how God emphasizes, I am the Lord of hosts. I am God, Yahweh, of the armies, speaking oftentimes of the heavenly realm and armies, angelic beings. I am the God who has absolute power to do anything I want. He is the Almighty. He has absolute influence on whatever he decides to do. He is the universal ruler against whom no one can stand. And he points to the very undeserving grace that he showed to David from the past. Now he points, he takes them all the way back to his first anointing. He says, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep to be the ruler of my people Israel. If you remember, was David nobody? Sometimes when we look at David, we can even look at this promise and say, you know, David was such a good man. He must have deserved this. We look up to David, right, in many ways. We think that he is truly, he is the man after God's own heart. The question, why? Who was first? Was God the one who graced him first, or was it David that earned all of this blessing? I want to say it's the first. God was good to him from the very beginning. If we look at chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, it says, and he was anointed, and it says, and the Spirit of God worked mightily with him from that point. David was around 12 years old at that time, and God already began to do his work. Now, interesting that the Lord points out that I took you from behind the sheep. Think about it. Even his own family members. When Samuel comes to his house and he says, bring me all your sons, they forgot that they have another son, right? He had a, they had a 12-year-old son who was pasturing. They, they were kind of like, well, we're, we're all here, Samuel. I'm not sure why you're not choosing any of us. Well, do you have another son? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we do have another one. He's with the sheep. He's behind the sheep, it says here. Our sheep is more important than our son, apparently, here. And he says, bring him over. And he, God took him from back from the sheep 
and he anointed him, he promised him, and he carried him in his life all the way to where he is now, being at rest. Look, he made him a valiant warrior. He made him win some major battles. He made him to be a relative to Saul. He made him very popular. The whole nation loved David, right? He brought him all the way. He took away the whole kingdom of Saul, and he made him to be the shepherd of the nation of Israel. And God says, why? Because you're so good? Because you are so good in your nature? Now, let me ask you this. If, you were, if we would continue to read 2 Samuel, and we would get to chapter 11, chapter 12, the great sin of David, as he didn't make, committed adultery, and he slayed, he killed Uriah. We were reading that with our family this past week. They were furious. He hands them a letter to Uriah and says, take it to the commander. This is your, <laughs> this is your execution order. So this Uriah takes it his, to his commander, not knowing that he is going to be killed. This man who is more noble than David himself gets to be killed by our hero here. David, what if I tell you that this event actually happened before this promise, before the divinical covenant? Because in reality, when you look at the chronological way, when this was given, this was probably within the last 10 years of David's reign. His Bathsheba, his sin with Bathsheba, his murder has happened years before that. Solomon was already growing up here at this time. David received grace not because he earned it. He received it for free. He received it because it was out of God's sovereign love for him that he bestowed on him. He says, David, I want you to understand and remember whatever you're experiencing now and have experienced through the life, it is of my doing. It is not because of your doing. You did not earn it in any way. What I have done and what I provide for you is unconditional. Well, brothers and sisters, can you relate? Can you relate? Because the nature of God has not changed. If you think that you're here because you are a little bit better than someone else outside, you're here because of grace of God. Because he, in his sovereign will, out of his love and kindness, decided to bring you here, to listen to the word, to believe in him. Now, we're going to read the second half of this. Please go with me to verse 9, second half, all the way to 17. And I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them and that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you 
Who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me when he commits iniquity. I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Now, we're coming up to the covenant. So far, God says, listen, you receive from me. I don't need your help to make me more glorious. You receive whatever you receive from me is because, not because of who you are, but because of me, because I am acting out of my heart. And now he's switching a tune from what has happened in the past to what is going to happen in the future. The promise of a great name. Take a look. I will make you a great name. Does that remind you of anything? Did he promise that to someone else? He promised that to Abraham. He says, remember in Genesis chapter 12, Abrahamic covenant, he says, to the land you go, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. God already promised it to one man, to Abraham. And then he also promised the land for Abraham. He says, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. Abraham was promised a great name, land, a seed, and a blessing. Any believing Hebrew at this point, they were watching, they were watching and expecting for the promises to be fulfilled that were given to Abraham. And 2 Samuel 7 shows us that the covenant promises that were given to Abraham are now becoming a reality through David. The sovereign Lord did not forget his prior commitments, but is faithfully faithful to the previously made promises. It is a very important aspect. We know that it is in the heart of God to be truthful to what he said. At any given time in our life, we can say, you know what, because God said so, it will happen. You may say, but look, Abraham lived hundreds of years before. God would have said, that, that promise is gone. David, I'm going to make you, I'm going to have a new relationship with you. But no, God is so faithful that as he was faithful to Abraham, he just brings in and he says, you know what? The grace that I promised to Abraham is going to be united or revealed to the grace to you. Look at this. First is the name. I will make your name great. You wouldn't think that David's reputation was good enough. He was a successful king. He was a shepherd of the Israel nation. He was of great reputation already. But something else is coming up, something greater, even greater coming. He will have a name that will be great for eternity. Even now we're preaching about Jesus Christ, who ends up the son of David, and we're still mentioning name of David because God decided to grace David at some point. 
it's interesting to know that God is not ashamed to give anyone a great name. He's not stingy like that. Whoever honors him, whoever blesses God, whoever lives for him, he says, this is the name and this is the man, this is the woman, and I want to I honor him. I want to glory, give glory to them. Whether it's David, whether it's a woman who poured an expensive perfume on Jesus, whether it's centurion who had an extraordinary faith compared to the Jews who were around, he is not ashamed to honor and praise people who honor him. Look at the second thing, place. He says, I will give a place to my people, David. You know that God defined specific borders of the promised land. If you look at Numbers 34, you can map it out on the map. And you can, you can draw it and you can say, well, this is exactly what the promised land that was promised. But we understand that from the time the Israel conquered the land, and from the time the king Saul was there and fighting the enemies, and even during the David's time, that land was never occupied. David got closest to it, and still that land has not been occupied. The, the, the land, the land, we believe that it will come when Jesus Christ our Lord, the son of David, will come down upon this earth and he will conquer it, and the promise will be fulfilled. In the same way, rest. He says, I will give you rest. I will give my nation rest. And I will give you rest, David. There will be no disturbance from surrounding nations even now. When we even look at Israel now, they got a little chunk of land right now. Oh, man, they're mostly military advanced nation because they have a lot of enemies. They don't have rest from their surrounding nations. As far as we know, all the nations around, around them, they would like to get rid of them. So rest, land, it will come. When our Lord Jesus Christ comes, he will make that happen. But I want to make a point that God is faithful to the promises that he has given back to Abraham. He has given them to David. And he has fulfilled, as we will see, the promises to David even in Jesus Christ and will fulfill them in the future. We're coming to this next promise where he says in verse 11, I will give you, the Lord also declares to you, the Lord will make you a house for you. Will make a house for you. Now, at this point, the package that God offers David is quite grand. If you were to compare David's offer to God, God, I'd like to build you a house out of stone, out of cedar. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. To what God is giving David now, it would probably sound something like this. If your four-year-old son would come and dry your car, he says, Dad, this is for you. I drew this for you. You can put it on the wall. You can take it to work. You can tell everybody that I did this for you. <laughs> and you, being full of your riches, you turn around and says, well, here are keys. The car is standing right outside. And the car actually just should represent the factory that I just granted to you, that you're actually going to produce this exotic car. Forever, you will, it's yours. 
I give it to you. I grant it to you. You see the comparison? David did something like a picture. And God says, let me give you a house, David. And we understand that he's not talking about this house of cedar or stone. God talks about something that is greater, something that is more glorious. He's talking about a whole legacy, a whole legacy. This house of David is based on a descendant. Most of the blessings promised to David from verse 11 down are not directly applicable to David, but they are applicable to his descendant. Now, and we see that the use of descendant in Nazbi, at least, it literally means seed. And there are several features that when we look at this passage, there are several features that we have to pay attention to it because we need to know who is the seed, right? Is this Solomon? Is this someone else? Or is this Jesus Christ? And the seed, you can see that will be a direct son or grandson or great-great-great-grandson of David because it says, who will come from you, literally from your bowels. The seed will build Yahweh a house for his name. The seed, as we read, is expected to sin. It says when he sins, I will discipline him. But yet the seed will remain in this father-son relationship. So who is the seed? The most interesting is that the seed will have a throne and dominion that is eternal. And this is, makes it a little bit harder because we understand to build a house, David in First Chronicle, he clearly understood that Solomon is the one who is going to build a house. Okay, so this pertains to Solomon. Solomon would sin because he's a human being, but Solomon's throne cannot be forever. He's a human being. He's going to die. So what does he mean by seed? You see, in the Hebrew Bible, just like in the English Bible, seed may have this plural meaning. I can give you a grain of seed, or I can give you a ton of seed. So when God, and I believe that that's exactly how God uses this term seed. I'm going to give you seed, meaning I'm going to give you a posterity. Posterity means all of the coming descendants is what I represent by the seed. And out of this posterity, there will be someone who's going to build me a house. There will be someone who's going to be sinning, and I will discipline him. But yet, with, among this posterity, I will continue to keep this covenant forever. Forever. This descendant is going to have a kingdom. This kingdom will be established, and it will be eternal. This throne meaning this, from this posterity, from your sons, there's someone going to be on the throne forever. Verse 13. The kingdom will be eternal. Rulership will be eternal. But it's important to know that the promise, the covenant, it does not guarantee an interrupted throne. In fact, this book, as I said, it was written later on while Israel was in the Babylonian captivity. There was no king on the throne at that time. And yet everyone understood that the line of David exists and that legitimacy for once David's descendants to throne remains. 
And that meant that any time, whether it would be in 100 years or 400 years or in 1,000 years, from now on, a descendant from the line of David may be installed as the king of the nation. And that is exactly what happened. After a period of no kings, we read in Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here is the promise that was given to Abraham. Here's the promise that was given to David. A legitimate son was born. In Luke 1.32, it says this, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Thousand years later, Jesus fulfilled the genealogical part of the divinic covenant, but he will fulfill it functionally as well, completely. When he comes upon the earth and he reigns fully as a fully legitimate son of David, son of Abraham, and now king in his full execution of his power. Now look with me briefly at verse 16 of chapter 7. God turns it around and says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. You see, since David's seed's kingdom and throne will be eternal, that means David's kingdom and David's throne will be forever as well established. Think about the implications of that. When we are going to be maybe thousands of years from now in the kingdom, all worshiping Jesus Christ ultimately, right? The ultimate king, the ultimate son of David. To a certain degree, David may say, well, yes, these are, this is Christ's kingdom, but it's also my, my kingdom as well, Right? Here it is. Your kingdom shall be forever. So he gets a little bit of a piece of that. The grace of God is truly has eternal, eternal consequences. It has eternal results. We'll talk about a little bit that anything we do, any kind of relationships we have on earth, because we're dealing with God the Father and God in three persons as eternal God, anything that we do, whether we're called something, we're having, we're, whether we've received a blessing, graced in something, it has eternal consequences. It has eternal results. And it's very important for us to understand that. God has not changed since that time. Last but not least, the grace of God comes within a relationship. Look at verse 14 and 15. I will be a father to him meaning to him, to your descendant, I will be a father, to your posterity. And he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of man. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. The descendants of David, they truly had the house. They were going to enjoy, and they did enjoy a very unique and privileged relationship with God. It is a father-son relationship. In one case, it became father-son with a capital S relationship. Jesus was the only one, the only begotten son, son who will reign forever. Not just a string of descendants 
all the way to Jesus. But Jesus being eternal, God, he will reign as eternal son with the same relationship. When we read in the Bible, the term son sometimes means more than just being a physical offspring of one's father. The term son is used to refer to one who rules in place of another, like the father. For example, Adam was the son of God in the sense that he, that he ruled over God's creation as his angels. angels. Say, um, as his agent, I apologize. Satan and the angels are also referred to as sons in the same sense. Now here Solomon and the David's descendants that they were to follow, they also will be referred to as enjoying a father-son relationship with God. In this sense, Whoever becomes on the throne is not becoming a son of God through birth, but as soon as he becomes a king on the throne, God has unique relationship because he is from the line of David. It's truly amazing. Truly amazing. When we read, remember the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2? I'll read you just a portion of it. He speaking of Yahweh, who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, at the rulers of the nations. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is exactly what God announced to the Lord Jesus Christ. The title, the son of David, was given to multiple descendants after David himself, even after Solomon. But we understand that Psalm 2 was specifically messianic. You cannot miss it that this son of David was very unique, that he was given power over all of the nations. But when Jesus came upon the earth, and he was called the son of God, God himself pronounced him as that. He says, what did he say? God says, and behold, a voice out of heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is what during his baptism. During the, res- during the transfer- transfiguration, God says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Paul preaching in Acts chapter 13 says this, and we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, in the New Testament, there was no one who missed it. Anyone who believed in Jesus Christ, the son of God, they saw this promise being fully fulfilled, that here is someone who accepted the title of son of David is the king of Israel and the king of the world. The relationship between those from the posterity of David, the royal line is highlighted by this continuous love toward the seed. I will correct him when he rejects me, when he, when he disobeys me, right? But my loving kindness, my loyal love toward your seed will never depart. 
What a promise. What a promise. Imagine a king, any given king. It's obvious that most likely in this form of government that the son, one of the sons would become the next king. But imagine what David is getting. He says, no, no, no. Your sons will always be kings. You are a royal line forever, for eternity. It's mind-boggling. But David accepted it. He says, wow, we're going to read that about that next time. Now, we've covered this so far, that several aspects of God's grace, that God's grace comes from the one without a need. We've looked at it as that it is sovereign and free, that it is true to his promises, that it has eternal results and it comes within a relationship. Five aspects of this grace. And we, as we come to this text, we understand that this promise was specifically for David. We can't just say, you know what, I'm in the line, so this applies to me. No, this was a Davidic covenant. We, you and I, will live under the new covenant through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's important for us to see that God of the Old Testament, God of the Davidic covenant has not changed. He's the same God who implemented the same grace to us. He works out of the same nature. When we look at him as one without a need, we can immediately relate that to ourselves, right? We said, in him we have redemption in Christ through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Why do we have forgiveness of our sins? It is because of riches of his grace, not because of what we have done. He says, he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. According to the riches of his glory. We're not granted power of the spirit because of we are trying to do better because we have accomplished this or we have accomplished that because he is rich in his glory when we talk about his sovereign and free grace we definitely can relate we see but god in romans 5 8 demonstrated his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. 5, 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Same principle. As David was useless, as David was nobody, he was brought up to a very high place. In the same way with us, we were nobodies and God just decided to grace us and brought us out of darkness into the light. Paul read it just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. What have you contributed to him before the foundation of the world? To his grace. The answer is nothing. Grace of God is true to his promises. Grace of God that he grants us every single day is always consistent with the word. You see, when the disciples heard the word, I will never leave you or forsake you, I can look today and I can know Jesus Christ, as you promised 2,000 years ago, today you will never leave me or forsake me. You will hold me in your hand, right? 
The promises are always true. He's faithful to his own promises. When we talk about relationship, well, definitely we can relate, right? We're called the sons of God. We have been adopted into the family. God is relational. God is perfect in his relational um, aspect within the three persons of the Trinity. And he shares that. He extends that to people. He's relational God back then, and he's relational to us today. He applies the same loving kindness, if not greater, to us than he even did to the descendants of David. He teaches us, he spanks us, he corrects us, but his loving kindness never leaves us. Just like back then, the eternal God had promises with eternal results, today, Jesus, through Jesus Christ, we have eternal blessings. Whether it is a home that's going to be in heaven forever or upon the new earth, right? Whether it is rest that we're going to have in Jesus Christ, whether it is the comfort of seeing Christ face to face, whether it is fellowship with him, whether it is fellowship with believers for eternity, it has eternal effect. We're called the sons of God, not today, not just for today. We're called the sons of God forever through Jesus Christ. It is truly beautiful. Before we conclude, I'd like to read from Romans chapter 8, 18. Speaking of eternal consequences within relationship. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself also will be set free from slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. God's grace has begun long time ago. He has always graced people according to his nature. He has always done so independently, not depending on you and what you have to offer him. He didn't do it so that you could pay him back for the entire eternity, right? In fact, he will continue to grace us through eternity because this is who God is. He does so out of his loving nature that is just ready to pour grace on you over and over and over. You, take, you just took a breath because he graces you. And this, that doesn't stop. We continue to experience that. He does so because of who he is. I invite you to pray with me at this point. Our Lord, Father, when we look at your word, And we see how much you do to broken people like David and everyone that followed. 
all the way to us, we understand that they were not worthy. Neither are we worthy of any of your goodness and love, patience, kindness, forgiveness, redemption. We're not worthy of your promises that have eternal results where we will be with you forever. We're not worthy of that. It is because you who is just glorious, loving Father, who loved your Son, Spirit loved your Son, you have this glorious, harmonious love in Trinity, and you extend it to us. and says, I want the, that creation, those humans, to be part of us. I want them to have relationship with us. I want them to be graced by us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for all of your works. On our behalf, all of your grace that you lavish on us nonstop. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.